Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about, well, what I did for my summer vacation and comparing that with the concept of the road to nowhere. Based on the title alone, you could reasonably infer that this might be a fluffy, soft episode of inappropriate conversations, but I do intend to bring it over to the idea of what I consider to be a fairly dangerous concept, a fairly reckless concept now, but 20, 25 years ago, it was probably the way I was thinking in terms of the best way to have a vacation. Because to me, vacation is quality time spent uh, in a place and with certain people. And it's not about, well, sightseeing. It's not about plans. It's not about events. And so often, what we do when we take a family vacation in particular is build the vacation around exactly those types of events. And sometimes that leads us to places which are not as satisfying as it could be if you just took a few days off work and sat on your back porch with a book. This, for me, however, has been an outstanding summer. We have had the opportunity since perhaps sometime in April to go on more than just one vacation, so to speak. And a lot of this has been 25, 30 years in the making, both from the perspective of my career and where my career has gone and being in a place where I've got the uh, ability and the time and the resources, the time off to do a trip like this. And part of it is celebrating key relationship milestones, like uh, having you know known my wife for more than 30 years and been married for 25 those sort of things, inspiring that idea of saying, well, let's go and do something together to celebrate. So where did that take us? It took my wife and I to Hawaii and to Las Vegas, part of that for work and part of that simply vacation. I'm not going to describe it as any sort of second honeymoon kind of thing, but it was very nice to be on a long vacation, more than a week, with just the two of us. We also then took individual trips with our kids because they had certain things that they wanted to do. And, you know, they've hit the age now of being young adults in every way that it doesn't make sense to force everybody into the same destination. If, you know, my son would prefer to spend a long weekend plus in Washington, D.C., visiting with friends and my daughter would rather go to New York City. So as a family, we've spent during the course of you know, maybe four or five months taking trips to Hawaii, Las Vegas, Washington, D.C., New York City, and Hilton Head Island off South Carolina. The latter was the first one that actually brought a combination of family members together. It was not only the first time that every member of my immediate family was you know, doing that big trip in a car thing, but we also had relatives, or for what for me would be the in-laws, coming to join us. And that's a very different vacation dynamic. If I were to compare the most recent week... And the week that I've sort of taken off from inappropriate conversations after that holiday, it's that difference in coming back you know, really and truly rested uh, versus you know comparing that to the Hawaii trip where my wife and I went together. We set our own schedule. Uh, we reacted very flexibly to anything that might come our way in terms of change. The nice thing is that on all these trips, weather has not been a factor. You can have a negative situation if you're in Washington, D.C., the weekend of their power outage. But we miss that, thankfully. 
in New York City, too much rain can really be a problem. Uh, but we had sunny days on that trip. And in Hawaii and in uh, Hilton Head, there were there were moments of rain, but it didn't really fall on us. And at no point did rainfall interfere with our travel plans. I intend to post an image up online. I think it was our first night, our first real day. You know, when you go to Hawaii, you have that entire travel adventure where unless you live uh, on the West Coast, the trip to Hawaii is fairly arduous. It's you know nine hours or so in the air. For me, it was. But we got there. We you know, kind of got there that night, crashed, woke up the next morning, and really then sort of took care of some housekeeping. We stayed in the same place for the entire time, but then hopped on trips from there. So we didn't just stay on one island. We ended up visiting four over time. But those trips to other islands were early in the morning to late at night, day-long excursions, brought us back to the same home base each evening, meaning that when we first arrived, we could unpack, we could buy groceries. We had a washer and dryer in the, in the condo that we were staying in. We could equip ourselves for a nice extended stay. That night, that first full day, we went for a walk on the beach that was closest to the condo, walking distance from the condo, although we weren't you know, beachfront or anything like that. And, you know, in, in the course of sort of figuring out okay, what was the water temperature like, what was the wave pattern going to be, how long was the beach, how far down could we go in either direction before it really wasn't ideal for you know, walking or at least not walking barefoot. In the, in the course of doing that, I found this single rose laying in the sand. I don't have any story behind it. I'm going to include the picture on the website with this particular episode of Inappropriate Conversations. But I don't have any detail. I probably won't even caption the photo because anyone looking at that image knows as much about it as I did. One single long stem rose lying on the sand on a beach on the coast of Maui. Just a very, kind of a very interesting situation. And uh, to me, you could read that positively, you could read that negatively. And I, of course, chose to read it positively. I want to have a good trip. I don't want to be you know, bringing up you know, ugly, negative consequences to other people's relationships. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with a coworker not long ago. She was one of those individuals who tends to see everything that happens in a negative way. I guess quick to react is how I would describe that personality trait. It isn't a bad trait. It's not a character flaw. I'm not describing it in any of those terms. But she is the kind of individual where if you were to say something that could be read in more than one way, I have found over the years that she consistently reads whatever could be said uh, and viewed positively, uh, she tends to view it negatively. I mean, if it could go either way, she tends to be quick to take insult, quick to presume that others are being insulted, quick to jump to the defense of the downtrodden, and a lot of times taking exception to things people say where no one's trying to insult anybody in the first place. Again, if a misunderstanding is going to occur, you'd like the person who's going to do the misunderstanding to always err on the side of being positive or deferential or at least not constantly taking an accusing tone, seeing people from the best possible perspective. And I sort of, I called her on it and said, you know, what I'd like to hear from my peers going forward is that if I say something by mistake, it could be read in more than one way. I want you to assume that I'm saying it in the positive way and not in the negative way. And if you need to get more information to ascertain whether that's fair or not, please ask questions. I'll be happy to answer them. But I don't want to continue to be in a situation where we're getting along with each other in an up and down kind of way, because every now and then you're assuming I'm saying something snarky when I'm not. And 
I didn't want to make that same mistake on the beach. So the one thing we did on this vacation, which to me was perhaps the greatest trip I've ever been on, uh, better than the honeymoon trip, longer than the honeymoon trip, which I think helped. But, you know, as adults, you're better able to appreciate the blessings you've received and also with a few more resources with which to do things. Uh, the honeymoon trip was definitely on a budget. The two of us had graduated from college, but I was the only one of the two of us who had a job. And my job was still, to this day, the lowest paying job I've ever had coming right out of college. So we didn't have a lot of resources and you're, you're honeymooning on a budget. But the thing that we still did for ourselves was plan a lot of things out in advance. Because you really can't go from one of the Hawaiian Islands to another Hawaiian Island very easily on the fly. It's going to require a little bit of planning. And I'm a planner by nature. In fact, I refer to myself as somebody who's guilty of not just planning, but also plotting. And my wife has a great character trait when it comes to this as well. So she did almost all the you know arrangements on that side. And I took care of some of the other things. But these day trips, it was really important that we have reservations because you're hopping on a plane. We needed an itinerary. We needed a tour guide. We needed all of those things. And the good thing, the thing that really made the vacation easy to manage was that we didn't have a lot of these pre-scheduled events back to back. If there was going to be a luau, if there was going to be a, a boating tour to, to look for whales, we were able to get some whale watching in successfully right at the end of the season. So uh, a week later, two weeks later, we probably wouldn't have been able to see any humpback whales that were still in that part of the ocean because they had hit the point. Uh, in fact, many of them had already hit the point of migrating north. So if you're going to do those things, it helps to have days in between where you're not just sort of locked into today we're doing this, tomorrow we're doing that, the next day we're doing that. There were days where we didn't have anything necessarily planned. And some of those days followed a late night return from another island. So it was good that we had days that we could sleep in because on other days we were waking up, you know, at 2.30 in the morning, even earlier, to either catch flights or to catch a tour, going up to the, you know, the craters at the top of the mountains of Maui or doing um, a guided tour of an entire island. And in some cases, um, some of these islands are fairly big. So the trip to Hawaii, very successful, and a lot of the success had to do with it being planned. On the trip to Las Vegas, everything was planned out for me because there was a work element in play. So you didn't necessarily get to make your own schedule there. The trip to Washington, D.C., we allowed my son to sort of drive the agenda. When were we going to leave? When were we going to arrive? Who were we going to meet? Some of those things were lined up and sort of the dominoes fell into place once we knew what his plans were because the trip was largely designed around facilitating his vacation, since you know, neither one of my children went on the trip to Hawaii with my wife and I. In New York City, it was a little bit you know, more of a, of a three-person effort where all of us had things we wanted to do, and all of us got those things done, and we were going to a particular show, so we had one clear deadline that we all had to meet together. And again, that went very smoothly. It's hard not to spend more money per day in New York City than any of the other trips, and I think if you factor out that initial cost of travel, of just getting to Hawaii, uh, New York City is more expensive than Hawaii as far as it goes. But that was a very successful trip. Again, shorter than the others, but also with clear, clearly things planned. So what I was looking for when we went to South Carolina, my first trip ever to that you know, part of the country, I'd been through South Carolina before on the way to Florida because we'd done a Disney trip. And like the trip to Hawaii, Disney, it was necessary to have planned days off. Disney in the summertime can be exhausting. 
there's just a little bit too much sun in Florida. On this particular trip, we're not going through South Carolina. We're actually going to a South Carolina destination and stopping. And my hope would be that it might be the trip this summer, the only trip this summer, where there wasn't a lot scheduled, where you could simply go, head out to the beach with a book, and sit, listen to the waves, read your book under an umbrella. I was looking for that. And we sort of achieved it. We certainly tried to achieve that. But it's much more difficult when you have six people than when you have two. And when some of those people have special particular needs and goals in mind, uh, we had a day trip that we scheduled for the middle of our week, meaning that everything leading up to that week was about preparing for that, that day trip. And everything after it seemed very short. It seemed like when that trip was over, there wasn't much vacation left. And it all comes down to what it means to plan your trip. How much planning do you pack into a vacation? And the contrast that I want to make is between this sort of we're going to New York to see a show or we're going to Hawaii and we're going to see at least four islands is the, dis- the difference between having a plan and going on the road to nowhere. I have a friend uh, who no longer works with me in this particular company, but for a while she was somebody that I kind of relied on. It was an interesting thing because we weren't in the same group. Uh, we didn't report to each other. We didn't necessarily have that many you know, natural points of contact within the working day. But there were those moments where you'd be in the same place at the same time, and our stories seemed to have a lot in common. And I always like that when that happens, where either there's a common interest or there's a common you know, storyline. And one of the things that she said that really triggered with me a memory, it took me all the way back to 1992, was the notion of going on a vacation to nowhere going with no plans, going with no reservations. So let me quickly read an essay from uh, a document that I called Temptations from the Wilderness. Now, early on in Inappropriate Conversations, very early on, in an episode uh, dealing with the least of these, I did cover some material from Temptations from the Wilderness 2 and a surrealist short story called Some Assembly Required, reading verbatim, in fact, a fairly large passage, which was a sermon But in this case, instead of a fictionalized sermon, Temptations from the Wilderness 1 was a series of essays. It was an attempt to write in a format that would work on an editorial page or as an editorial columnist. When I wrote these, I had months before given up the idea of actually being in the newspaper business. I graduated from college in the late 80s, and by the early 90s, I was working in retail instead. And I don't regret not doing that newspaper job. I've talked about it before, I won't go there again, but when you enjoy writing, writing for pleasure, it isn't necessarily a good thing to be in the position of writing for deadlines or writing for someone else's pleasure, so to speak. And that was kind of the decision that I'd made. But I still, uh, given the opportunity to be a columnist, might have taken it, might have moonlighted, for want of a better word, because it was still an interest of mine. So what I did for Lent that year, as a Lenten exercise, was rather than giving something up for the 40 days of Lent, I engaged to take on an undertaking. And the idea behind the undertaking was to go in and write a short column-style essay every single day. So every day during the month of Lent, I wrote one page, double-spaced, with very generous margins, the kind of thing that would fit into a small block on on an opinion page in a local newspaper. And on this particular day, March 11th of that year, here's what I wrote. 
Only part of the credit for this goes to Vim Vendor's 1976 movie, Kings of the Road, which I saw this week. The idea often recurs to me when I watch road movies. Thelma and Louise is a recent American example. Books remind me of the idea, too. Take John Madden's One Size Fits All for as an example. The idea? Take a break and hit the road on a controlled excursion. The framework would roughly follow this. Five-day automobile round trip with leeway for a couple of extra days. Live cheaply. Use cheap hotels. Local food, not fast food. And even low-octane gasoline. No shaving. No showering. No changes of clothing. Take only a toothbrush and toothpaste, a hairbrush, an emergency change of underwear and socks, and, and that's it. Not even pajamas. Avoid television. Keep only one audio tape. And leave it, in, leave it in the trunk. Don't use the cassette player. Travel with the radio. Perhaps just the AM radio. More importantly, bring pen and paper. Isn't San Antonio, Texas just about two and a half days away? San Antonio, Texas is one of my favorite cities to visit. And it occurs to me reading this essay that it's been too long since I've been there. I visited the city within five years of writing that particular essay, but I haven't visited the city since then. And that's far too long. I enjoy the river walk. I enjoy the food, not just the Mexican food and the Tex-Mex food. I enjoy the culture and the history. And I also enjoy the modern amenities that are available. It's a nice combination of things in a city that is still one of the United States, you know, 15 or 20 largest metropolitan areas. And probably something that most people don't realize just exactly how much space there is, how much there is to see and do in San Antonio, Texas. When you consider that from a sports perspective, we always view that town as a small market. I understand why that is from a media perspective. I don't find it confusing, but I do find it annoying that for a time, San Antonio was in the top 10. There was a period in time where it was the 10th or 11th largest city in the United States. Seems crazy to refer to that as a small market. So this idea of just getting in the car and going somewhere. Well, my friend at work had not only had that same idea, but unlike me, she and her husband had been able to execute it. They decided one year they just wanted to see the Carolinas. By car, no plane reservations, no hotel reservations, no elaborate triptych from AAA guiding their, their path through the map. Now, it's probably irresponsible to not have a map, but today, you know, this is like, I don't know, a decade ago we were having this conversation. You'd have a GPS in the car with you somewhere because, again, it's, it's irresponsible not to. But you wouldn't use it. Use the map. Just go by the road signs. Just see the state. See the states in this case. They did it again a couple of years later uh, in the state of Maine. And this time I knew they were going to do it beforehand. And she shared with me the pictures that they came back with. I'm pretty sure they did some of the elements that I described in my essay pretty well. Eat local. Sleep local. Don't make plans in advance. Bring pen. Bring paper. Bring camera. Yeah, don't pre-schedule everything. Don't create the soundtrack for the trip. Just go. On the other hand, I'm sure that there are certain things that I would have thought of in this essay that they probably bypassed completely. <clears throat> the no shaving, no showering, no changes of clothing idea, in retrospect, doesn't seem that smart. But since you're traveling by car, you do have room in the trunk. You've got the ability to sort of wing it. And as long as you have, you know, again, enough room in the trunk for that change of clothing and so forth, 
you know, you can almost play it by ear. You can land in a small city on the coast of Maine and decide you want to stay here a couple of days and not just blow through. And as long as you can find a bed and breakfast or a local hotel that, that has, you know, room to let, you're ready to go. A lot of times, and I'm very guilty of this, we take vacations in such a way that if we're going to be staying in a hotel chain, something by Marriott, something by Hilton, something by Holiday Inn, you're going to be experience a standardized experience. If you go from one city to the next, well, one Fairfield Inn or one Hampton Inn looks just the same as the next one, more or less. You don't have as much local flavor that way. And even less local flavor if where you eat is Subway or McDonald's or Wendy's or the Olive Garden. You're not tasting anything you wouldn't otherwise taste. Now, I'm guilty of this because, especially when I'm traveling with my family, I try to bring enough of the amenities of home with us. That even if we're staying in a condo that isn't in every way truly a local establishment, it's still that we're going to go to the store, we're going to buy things, we're going to eat what we like to eat. We're not necessarily going to be you know, winging it. And it really jumped out at me in this trip to South Carolina that it was very different from the last time that I'd been on the Atlantic seaboard. The last couple of trips that we had taken in that direction, one in particular, was the closest my wife and I have ever gotten to this notion of just hitting the road. And rather than, again, this time staying in the same place the whole time and having everything scheduled out in advance and spending a lot of time in the same beach area and maybe even repeating our favorite local restaurant, but still repeating the restaurant. This other trip a few years earlier, we had the opportunity and took the opportunity to just see Delaware and the eastern shores of Maryland and Virginia. The circumstances came to us a little bit by surprise. Unlike this Hawaii trip that required you know, almost nine months of advanced planning to get exactly right, this one kind of you know, crept up along the way somewhere. I think it was a spring break trip, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken. Spring break or early summer. My daughter was on a trip with some friends. So as they were going down to the southern part of Florida to see the Florida Keys, she was with them. So one of our children had been spoken for. And then my son wanted or was willing anyway to spend a few days with his aunt and uncle um, he's, you know, one of the, he has a good relationship with his cousin. There's a lot of years between them and it's enough years between them that at the time the, uh, the younger cousin really looked up to my son. So my wife's side of the family was very excited that my son was going to be staying with him and really totally comfortable with the fact that we weren't going to be staying more than the first night. And that's what we did. We dropped my son off. We had a meal and we hit the road. We went from the Washington DC area up toward Baltimore, up to Wilmington, Delaware, the only destination this entire trip that we actually had penciled in was I kind of wanted to see Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware is a state that is very interesting from a retail perspective with one of the largest at the time, one of the largest shopping malls in America, where a lot of its appeal and a lot of the reason that it did so well, especially with high end stores, was that Delaware didn't charge customers sales tax regardless of the state they were from. Now, I'm not going to speak to whether that's legal or not. I'm not really sure about the ins and outs. But basically, if you went to this particular mall, you kind of knew that it was a tax-free day every day. And when I worked at the record store, this was our number one or number two store in the chain. So we made this journey, got up toward Wilmington, you know, got into town, had no place to stay, had to wing it. Now, the difference between, I think, traveling with your wife and being sensitive to her interests and needs and what I might have done 
uh, you know, a few years earlier when I wrote this essay was we didn't stay local. We didn't find a, some hole in the wall motel. We stayed at, you know, a chain, but we still tried to stay cheaply. Again, thinking Fairfield Inn or Hampton Inn, Motel 6 or Super 8 would have worked had that played out, but that wasn't what we found closest to this mall. So we packed it in that night. We woke up the next morning. We sort of looked at this mall from a sort of a busman's holiday from a retailer's perspective. Had a great lunch at a place, that, a chain, but it was a chain I hadn't eaten at since I lived in Kansas City area. And then we, we had to ask ourselves, now what? Do we push north into Philadelphia? Do we head sort of almost due east into New Jersey? What do we do? And it was only really at that point that we firmed up our idea to say, let's go see the eastern shore of Maryland. Now, the reason that I wanted to do this really didn't have anything to do with Ocean City. We did go there. It wasn't really even about a beach vacation. We had our swimsuits, but we really weren't all that set on using them. It's not like we brought you know, snorkel gear and boogie boards. It wasn't a beach trip we were on. The main thing I wanted to do was to try to talk my wife into going on the longest combination bridge tunnel in the United States, something like 22 or 23 miles long with a combination of bridge over ocean and tunnel under ocean. Uh, it costs, I don't know, something crazy at 20 bucks or more to go to pay the toll to make this journey. And when you do, you're, you're leaving one part of Virginia and you're landing in a completely different part of Virginia because the Maryland Eastern shore has places like Salisbury where we, we had a very good time and, and spent more than that one day. Decided, hey, let's actually stay longer here because it was close enough to go see the beaches in Delaware a second time, not just driving through, but actually going and stopping. And it was very close to Ocean City. But when you go south from there, you're basically leaving the state of Maryland, going into a very rural part of the state of Virginia. And eventually that driving down that little sliver of peninsula takes you to this bridge and tunnel. We did the bridge and tunnel. It lands on the other side at Virginia Beach. So we're now in that you know, five cities area of Virginia. And we're seeing stuff that we, again, hadn't planned to see and at no point had really even thought we would go see. I, if I were to take a trip to Virginia Beach from where I live, I'm sure I would fly. But the circumstances allowed us to drive there. From time to time, we would check in with my brother-in-law and let him know kind of where we were and how it was going. Because there's a certain amount of risk to this particular kind of trip. If you truly are going to remote areas, small cities, up and down the coast, for example, staying in very local places, well, you know, what if something happened to you? You don't have a reservation. There's no paper trail in terms of what happens if you don't show up where you're supposed to show up tonight. Does anybody know where you would be? And in this case, if we didn't make those phone calls, our starting point and our stopping point on any given leg of the trip would have been a mystery. And we didn't want to take that risk. We didn't want to not be somewhere. We didn't want to be in a situation where no one would know that we weren't where we were supposed to be if something happened to either one or both of us. So when he heard that our ultimate destination was probably going to take us to Virginia Beach on the weekend, he decided that that was a good enough provocation to take his family with my son and drive down from the D.C. part of Virginia to the Virginia Beach area and meet us there, which we did. So in one trip, without having planned to visit any beach, we visited a lot more beaches than just the ones that you'd know. We visited remote fishing piers and you know, looked at the ocean from the northern part of Delaware as well. But we actually visited um, you know, Bethany Beach and Rehoboth Beach, Fenwick Island, Ocean City, the beaches at Virginia Beach. It turned into a, a beach-faring tour. 
And if we'd had more time, if we'd had those two flex days to add to the trip, we probably could have thrown in you know, a stop at uh, Bush Gardens or Colonial Williamsburg or somewhere like that, because we certainly passed by. The traffic jam told us that we passed by. But where my brother-in-law took one route straight back to their house at the end of the beach part of the trip, my wife and I were still, we were still on our journey. We decided we wanted to see Richmond, Virginia, and we went and we saw Richmond, Virginia. We didn't see anything there from an attraction perspective. We didn't tour the Capitol. There wasn't a music performance, the concert we were trying to catch. We didn't have tickets to the theater. Nothing was planned. And you know what? If I were to compare this year's you know, vacation with my wife to Hawaii and our time together in Las Vegas to, well, if that was really the pinnacle, that was the best. Well, what's the next best vacation? And if I go to the next best vacation I ever had with just my wife, I'm not sure that our honeymoon wins out in a battle over this journey to nowhere, this let's go see Wilmington, Delaware, and the shoreline going all the way down to Virginia Beach on our own pace, driving past historical markers that I have very little doubt my my parents would have stopped to see the first one-room schoolhouse in Delaware or whatnot. In some cases, we made a decision not to do what our parents would do and to keep on driving. And in other cases, we took detours because either one or the other one of us just wanted to see something. Again, that's a very dangerous way to travel and not necessarily the, you know, the, uh, not a recommendation that I would make. In some ways, if you're doing this particular kind of trip with small children, I would think that it would be very inappropriate as an approach that we have a way of traveling in the United States using interstate highways and not the little two-lane roads, staying in hotels that you know the name of for perhaps even a slightly higher price because you know what you're going to get, uh, eating at restaurants where, again, you know the name. There's a national brand and therefore a certain amount of quality control because this kind of trip could go very badly. You could end up in with you know a, a very bad gastronomic reaction to local food in a place where the quality of the hotel you're in and the quality of the bathroom in that hotel doesn't necessarily measure up to the pressure you might put on it if you actually were dealing with food poisoning. But, you know, that's a small price to pay. I remember when I was a very little kid, you know, not knowing what the plan was. I'm quite sure my parents knew they were going to this part of Tennessee and we were going to stay in this particular place and we were going to go see this particular site. But as a little kid, I didn't know that. To me as a kid, I'm staring out the window looking at parts of the country I'd never seen before. Because if we weren't going to visit grandma and grandpa, if we weren't going to go see an aunt or an uncle, well then, sometimes we were just on the road. And to me, that unplanned trip, even if it's in your own state, even if it's in your own part of the country, to just say, you know what? We're going to drive down, we're going to see the western part of the state that we never get to, and we're going to figure out what we're going to do when we get there. It works on vacation. From my perspective, because the most important thing about any trip is not even where you go, it's who you're with. And to me, being able to take my son to Washington, D.C. was the right combination of person and place because it's what he wanted. Taking my daughter to New York City, the right combination of person to place because it's what she wanted. It didn't have anything to do inherently with the place. If you told me, hey, if I take two weeks out of my time in a couple of years to go on a trip with my wife, Hawaii would be a, a great trip. I loved every minute of it. I'd repeat it in a heartbeat. There is no single piece of that trip that I wouldn't seriously think about doing again in exactly the same way. But you know what? 
I could find a way to make those same two weeks work. Because, again, the goal was spending time away from work, away from kids, away from the rest of the family, away from church, and be with each other. That notion of hitting the road. I mentioned the film by Vem Vendors, Kings of the Road. And that German film was inspired in many ways by Easy Rider. And again, the idea that Easy Rider, you know, put out there that resonated so well with American people in the early 1970s was getting in the car and going. There are so many other road movies that, that I enjoy that resonate with me for the same reason. The comedy, The President's Analyst, comes to mind. And it's in that vein that I think at some point... As much as I love Hawaii and would do that again and would plan it exactly the same way, at some point there's going to be another vacation. Maybe a vacation to Maine or New England. Maybe a vacation to the upper peninsula of Michigan. In some ways, it doesn't really matter where we're going. In both this year's carefully plotted trip to Hawaii and a few years ago, the just random exploring Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, the key was taking in the culture and the idea of getting as close to local as you possibly can or as, as you're comfortable doing is also the idea of taking in the culture. That is essentially the driving force behind the road movies of Vim Vendors. The notion of the impact of American and other cultural influences on Western Germany in that Cold War era, in the post-World War II era, the era in which Vendors was born, and the primary influence in the filmmaking that he did in the 1970s. I'd be making a big mistake if I referred to Vendors as my favorite filmmaker. He's not. There are many films, even recent films from him, that I haven't seen. There are highly critically acclaimed films like the Buena Vista Social Club that I haven't seen all the way through. I'm not presenting vendors in the same vein that I perhaps have presented other directors like the Coen brothers and Luis Bunuel. But he ties into this topic particularly well, and there's an era in his work that I think stands out as a good example of this road to nowhere idea. Now, for me, it's been that notion of the road to nowhere is the dream vacation, but in some cases, he present, presents perhaps a more nightmarish vision, or at least a more bleak vision. And nevertheless, he's done as much or more with the road movie as anyone has since the early 1970s. The first film I saw from Vendors set the pattern that would be true for a lot of my early experience of his work. See it the first time, think you have no opinion, can't quite shake the ideas expressed in the film, see it the second time, and then come away with a strong opinion, usually strongly positive, but not always. I would not describe myself as the biggest fan of Vendor's interpretation of the Scarlet Letter. It is better than some of the later interpretations, but perhaps not better than some of the earlier ones. The first movie I saw from Vendor's was Paris, Texas. I saw it with my wife at an art house theater in the Midwest, one of really one of the better art house theater experiences that I've had. This was a nice new movie theater, not a rundown renovation situation that we so often see in the art house realm. Paris, Texas, not a road movie per se, but a movie where the it's almost the aftermath of the road movie. The walkabout has occurred, so to speak, and this is coming back into society, into the family, 
after that period of literally walking away from everything. From that, though, it was a sufficient experience on that second viewing to inspire me to explore more. Around the same time that I decided, I need to see more of the films of vendors. One of the local record and video stores, retail outlet, had had a major a major crisis. They switched owners. They were on the verge of going out of business, and they literally placed their entire selection of VHS tapes on sale. Now, we've seen this happen many times. It's not at all unusual to find huge clearance sales on VHS, and then, of course, later, a lot of sales on DVD. I recently just went to the library book sale here in the town that I live, and uh, the library book sale is kind of like a very large garage sale of music, books, and media, with the proceeds supporting the local library. And their selection of DVDs was larger in this sell-off, two, two bucks a title mode that I'd ever seen before. So we've seen these sort of things as the culture shifts. Most of the Laserdiscs that I bought when I was buying the 12-inch Laserdisc format were bought at a fairly deep clearance rate at the either early on when mistakes were being made and lost leaders were being generated and lots of special offers were out there, but especially at the end when things were essentially being marked down. Same thing for vinyl LP. I am, as I mentioned before, you're willing to be a bit of a cultural placostomous. I don't mind cleaning up the mess, especially if it's a format I like. So at the time, VHS was all there was. And yet here's this local, very large local store, essentially selling off at fairly cheap prices, you know, $5 and under every VHS tape they've got, or a lot of the VHS tapes they had. And while wandering through the foreign section, I found some things that I was definitely looking for, titles by Bunuel, titles by Bergman. But the real surprise to me was a very large selection of titles by Vim Vendors, including many of the ones from the 70s that are part of what we would call the road movie series. Specifically, that would be The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick, Alice in the Cities, Wrong Move, Kings of the Road. I was able to pick up all of those, along with a few others, the documentary Lightning Over Water, for example, and The State of Things. But it was those early films where, made in and around the time of The Scarlet Letter, uh, encouraged me to take another shot, to give vendors another try. And when you put those together with Wings of Desire, which I'll hit here in a moment, and Until the End of the World, which in some ways has some road movie elements to it, and comes, of course, much later uh, in the early 1990s, it was these films that led me to reconsider. Now, the, the things about vendors that I like the best are that he's almost anti-story. He has a, a technique similar to Michelangelo Antonioni from the Italian side, who in the 19, late 50s and early 60s made a lot of films which were almost without plot. Uh, the plot could be as simple as, here's a couple that are having trouble. Here, here's a, uh, a man looking for his girlfriend with her, girl, with her girlfriend. Just you know, two and a half hours of framework, but not heavily and intentionally plotted, where the acting is drawing on the emotions. The goalie's anxiety at the penalty kick begins with a goalie missing a penalty kick, failing to stop it, his team losing the game, and you know not being able to handle it, leaving the team and essentially hitting the road, going on the walkabout. And you're following him, and you're like, well, where is this even going to go? I mean, I don't really know this goalie. There's not a lot of exposition. We haven't been brought into his life and led to appreciate him and experience him for who he is. And at some point in the film, not long into the film, he murders somebody randomly, emotionlessly, 
completely without reason. And it's then that we're sort of glad, perhaps, that we don't we aren't that invested in him. But the rest of the movie is just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Is he going to get caught? Are we going to see him get caught? Is the film going to turn into a police procedural? And it didn't. Now, eventually, the movie gets to the place where you realize that his time is up and he is going to get he is going to get arrested. But it ends before you really get there. The film is not a story of disillusioned goaltender who commits a crime and gets arrested. It's not that at all. The film is basically trying to create that emotion, that moment of you're a goaltender facing a penalty kick with the game on the line, that sense of this is almost beyond my control. There's an 80% chance that I'm not going to succeed statistically. And even if I guess right and jump right and do the right things, it may not work. And even if it does work, if I don't really control the ball, the rebound may still find its way to the back of my net. And without showing more than, I want to say, a minute and a half or two minutes of, of soccer footage, the movie creates that emotion. Now, the screenplay was by Peter Hanke, who also would be the writer for the screenplay of Wings of Desire. So... Here I've gone ditch to ditch with vendors, decided that from the perspective of his road movies, I can get on board. I can watch a two-hour and 45-minute movie of a couple of guys just roaming along the border between East and West Germany. If nothing else, you get to see the border between East and West Germany, which is something that perhaps no Americans were really going to be afforded the opportunity to do at the time. It's a German film made in Germany from a German perspective, and Kings of the Road offers that perspective of what does it mean to just go. But Wings of Desire was a different story altogether. By this time, the first major movie he'd released after Paris, Texas, he is kind of returned from the walkabout in the same way that his character in Paris, Texas has come back from the dead, literally. And his filmmaking career turns a chapter. Now, as I mentioned, in 1992, Until the End of the World still has kind of a road movie element. There's a gathering of people and a gathering of resources. And even when they get to the place where the, the most of the film takes place, there's, there's sort of an adventure going on inside the mind where the plot of Until the End of the World, which is not a movie I recommend, it's not bad, but it's just not, it's not great, is that they've come up with a technique whereby science, for want of a better word, can record dreams. And what happens to the characters is they end up spending almost wasting their lives doing nothing more than sleeping, allowing their dreams to be recorded, and waking up the next day to watch them. So, for the sake of argument, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of watching dreams. And the other eight hours, there's not much to them. Especially if you're doing things from a scientific perspective, like recording, the uh, documenting the information from those dreams, trying to make correlations, trying to prove that it's working, trying to determine from a psychological perspective if there's any meaning to it. That's, in some ways, a road movie inside the subconscious. Wings of Desire, not quite so much. It is kind of like the goalie's anxiety of the penalty kick, built along a very simple concept. What if there's angels? What if the angels are watching over us? And what if one of those angels decided it wanted to be a human? There's your plot. The rest of it is showing what do the angels do? What does it mean for an angel to fall from grace, so to speak? How does an angel get along? How do you get along in modern Berlin when you don't have a history, when you don't have an ID, when you don't have any sort of track record? And the movie does a couple of things that really endeared it to me. One, 
it found a great role, maybe the best role for Peter Falk, as Peter Falk plays himself as an actor on location in Berlin. But Peter Falk, the actor slash character, is also somebody who many decades earlier had been a fallen angel. He also is somebody who had come to Earth. And it's why he can sense that this particular individual that he's meeting is, well, like him in many ways. So that really, just a fascinating and strange choice to cast Columbo almost as Columbo in some ways, but letting the actor play himself in the movie. I've read Peter Falk's memoir, for want of a better word. It's almost reads like it's just his notes about his career. And his feelings about Wings of Desire are as positive as my feelings were as a viewer. But what really won me over in the movie Wings of Desire is about 20 minutes of footage that does earn Vim Vendors his role as a different drummer. Even if you took away his road movie past, even if everything he's done since, including the Rykuter, um Cuban music documentary, uh, Buena Vista Social Club, the first 25 minutes of Wings of Desire would be enough for me to say, this is a very special filmmaker with a very special vision. I knew I was on to something. When I showed the movie Wings of Desire to members of my family, and they didn't get it. There's something about a depiction of angels being so gritty and so realistic that it doesn't seem otherworldly that turned my mother and sister, my older sister, off completely. It was not a movie that they enjoyed. They didn't see in it what I saw in it at all. That made me feel like, yeah, this is onto something. Because it's like those uh, films of Jesus that I talked about in the fourth episode of Inappropriate Conversations, where most of the movies made about the life of Jesus fail so completely. And the ones that get it the worst are the ones that are so caught up in the supernatural element where the sky has to part and the angels have to sing and, and all that other sort of stuff that they miss the fact that you can tell the story of Jesus in a documentary style approach with handheld cameras and almost improvised dialogue and get a lot closer to the truth. If you're being honest in your storytelling, well, there's something very honest about the beginning of wings of desire where the angels are just kind of roaming from place to place, shopping centers, uh, subway cars, people's homes. They're invisible to the people, but we can see them. And how does, how does the angel do his work? Somebody who's grieving, a hand on their shoulder that that person can't feel, but yet can sense. Someone who's you know, sitting on a subway, so distraught or so lost in thought that they're praying without regard for whether or not their moment of prayer is bothering anybody else, asking for help, asking for guidance, asking for a sign, asking for a better way. One of these angels sits, puts his arm around her, and suddenly, in, within the moment of prayer, her attitude changes. Her point of view becomes you know, not optimistic, but more positive. She has seen the sign without actually seeing it with her eyes. She has felt the touch without detecting anything with her skin. And it's because these angels have, well, done their job. It's that powerful investment in what that means, this notion of the angels making a difference, but feeling as if they're not having any impact, that provides the collateral for when one of them decides he's not going to be an angel anymore. It's both simultaneously 
tragic and wonderful. Wonderful in the awe and wonder kind of way. You toss in a couple of songs by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and a boy meets girl story with this angel character and a and a circus you know trapeze artist and acrobat, and to me that's not really what Wings of Desire is about. Wings of Desire is about that subtext. Again, Vim Vendors, not the best of all time at doing this. Uh, I would put Michelangelo Antonioni above him in terms of telling a story where what you're saying really isn't what it's about. And therefore, the amount of plot that's invested in the show doesn't matter. You don't come away from one of his movies with, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, kind of story retelling. Vendors is either fantastic if you're a plot summarizer, because there's very little plot to summarize, or a nightmare for the kind of people who try to write capsule reviews in the movie section of the entertainment guide of the newspaper, where they have just a few lines to tell you why you should or shouldn't see it. Why you should or shouldn't see it often doesn't have that much to do with the movie itself. I know I'm not alone in my appreciation for Wings of Desire. I think that it probably was the best movie made in its year, which I think was probably 1987, give or take. Part of the reason I think it's 87 is that on the official website for Vim Vendors, uh, www.vin-vendors.com, there's a link to an Alanis Morissette music video called Guardian. Just briefly reading the blurb underneath that, here's what it says from Alanis Morissette. This video is a tip of the hat to Vim Vendors' Wings of Desire. It is the 25th anniversary of the film having been released. The full circle poetry of my having written Uninvited for its remake, combined with my love of the original movie, combined with my love of Germany, having lived there for three years as a child, combined, most importantly, with how this video is such a visual extension of the song Guardian, which is so close to my heart. Guardian is the first single off Alanis Morissette's upcoming album, Havoc and Bright Lights, available for pre-order on iTunes on July 31st, meaning that at least that one song is available now. I'm going to do something very uh, wrong. I'm going to spoil the endings just a little bit for Wings of Desire and the American film City of Angels. So if you want to give me just you know 30 or 45 seconds here, if you'd prefer not to have these films spoiled, I want to do so because it calls out an irony. It's very unusual for Hollywood to make an acceptable remake of a classic European film. We've seen many attempts, and it's very rare that any of them are even, you know, again, moderately acceptable. But most of the time when you see it happen, you see something unusual occur. You see an effort to make a happy ending where there wasn't one, or to restore characters that were, you know, killed in the course of a film. To, in some ways, Hollywood trying to make right what you could argue that the European director got wrong. I don't make that argument. To me, sometimes a sad or a poignant or a um, multifaceted ending, an open ending, is far more impactful and meaningful than anything that might presume to tie up a whole bunch of loose ends. But in the case of City of Angels, and here's where you should stop for the spoiler alert, City of Angels is one of the rare Hollywood remakes that I can think of where it's taken a German film with a happy, fulfilling, loose ends, pretty well tied up ending, and turning it into something sad and unsatisfying. Usually, you end uh, an ironic ending of a German film or a French film that's seemingly unsatisfying. Hollywood comes in and tries to make it right. 
if Hollywood were to do a remake of The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut, I'm sure the kid would get adopted at the end and his new family would live happily ever after. That's the Spielberg way of telling stories. You don't do that in the case of Truffaut, where his character is more lost at the end of the film than he was at the beginning, staring at the camera with nowhere to go. And in the case of Wings of Desire, the ending is beautiful, uplifting, a far cry from the disheartening way City of Angels ended. The Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. Podcast. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod-safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at pollyannacowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, simplysyndicated.com. Peace and love. It is not often that I travel, and when I do, there's usually enough going on enough scheduled, for want of a better word, that a great deal of planning is necessary. If nothing else, though, it's important to remember, even on like the trip that I just took to Hilden Head, that there's that other idea out there, even if you can't execute it, even if you can only execute parts of it. The road to nowhere, while it might be on some level dangerous and risky, perhaps even irresponsible, depending on the circumstances, is very important. It's a collateral for want of a better word, it gives you permission to say, no, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to do what every other tourist has done. I'm just going to be here. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the website has comments enabled for the episode at inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriate Conversations is also available on Stitcher Smart Radio. Go to Stitcher, sign up, and among other shows, ask for Inappropriate Conversations. Thanks for listening. Navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. 
sponsored. This is simplysyndicated.com.